Jesus to whom we turn. So I want to start by doing a little review of where we've been because actually this was uh, one of the more challenging uh, teaching assignments I've been given. I was asked to do this about six weeks ago. And uh, normally when I've been asked to fill in, I just do something that was sort of on my heart, comes out of things I've been studying, bits and pieces of stuff. And I think it would be good if I dismiss the children now. It just came to me as Dale was waving. <laughs> Nevertheless, it's still <laughs> it's a little challenging to fit in um, the type of thing that is part of a teaching series. And it's one of the things that I think is beneficial about how we're led here, that we are teaching through the Bible specifically and with thematic and textual clues. So we started in... Ephesians, and the jumping off point for where I am now is the instruction in Ephesians that tells us we need to be aware of what's going on around us and not just be aware of what we see, but know there's a battle and there's a battle raging. And I think a lot of us go through our lives ignorant of the battle, uh, happily, blissfully unaware of the battle, and maybe even not engaged in the battle in any meaningful way either for your own soul or for the soul of others. And I think our adversary is perfectly happy with you being that way indefinitely. But if you want to step up and engage in the battle, you're going to quickly become uncomfortable. And Ben talked about the, the types of things that are symptoms of the discomfort and the reality of our, of our existence that we'll see. And those things he framed in the idea of the seven deadly sins. Now, the seven deadly sins were categories of sin that the desert fathers, the leaders of the church that had formed a monastic movement and sort of tried to separate from the world and perfect themselves, get themselves completely right by being separate from the world, the desert fathers realized that the people engaged in this monastic separate movement still had all these problems in their life. And they made categories, and the seven deadlies fit in these categories that intertwine, and I think we're all familiar with them in our own experience. Greed... Pride, envy, anger, lust, sloth, gluttony. Somehow we got a pass on gluttony uh, last week. I don't know why Ben chose to, to just sort of jump from gluttony into temptations. But uh, it, it, it let me go home and have a big Sunday dinner uh, guilt-free. So I don't know if uh, Joe is around. Uh, one of the things that... I don't see him. One, ah, so are we going to be able to do music? Awesome. So one of the things that Gray started was for each of these little thematic areas, he had a song. And now let me tell, tell you where I'm going. I'm going from the temptations that we experience and the way we experience sin to the temptation narrative of how Jesus experienced temptation and what happened. And I needed to pick a song for that. Well, I didn't need to, uh, but I decided I was going to. And if we can just cue up the first few bars of that and see um, if you all recognize this. Okay, we got somebody in the back who actually knows that. Yes. So, so are you familiar with this? I actually saw the first one. I, I, there's, there's a ton of them now. I, I like there's eight. I mean, I saw the first one in 1976. I went to the movie theater and saw it. And, and well, only a few of you here would have been able to do that. But <laughs> some people did remember probably from Netflix that that, that theme 
was played over a montage of preparation clips. So you see Sylvester Stallone as Rocky Balboa running in the early morning down the railroad tracks in Philadelphia, and then through these really seedy neighborhoods. And then he comes out to the Schuylkill River, if you, if you know Philly. He comes out to the Schuylkill, and he's sprinting up the Schuylkill River at this point, and finally gets to the library and ascends the steps of the library, and then somebody in back knew. He goes, victory. What was he doing? He's preparing. I mean, one of, it's one of the stuff that I, I don't know... If you're familiar with this movie, if anybody else has seen it but me, yes, a couple nods. Did anybody besides me get inspired and drink raw eggs to see if that helped? I know it's not healthy, but I tried it. He did, he did that. Uh, I wanted to be able to do those one-armed push-ups. Never could do it. Never even close. But he could do like a clap where he push and clap. I could do those. Not anymore, but I could. What did that inspire in me, at least, and why would I tie it back to this narrative? I wrestled with this passage, and I tried to figure out, like, what, what is it that it's presenting to us? What are we to learn? What is the example Jesus setting? How can we pull something out of this that's applicable today? And from the rocky idea and my initial thinking that was a sort of tangent, it kind of tees up as a WWJD sermon. Do you remember, do you remember back, you used to have little bracelets, you know, what would Jesus do? And I find that exceptionally unhelpful in this context because it's sort of like telling me, you know, Dave, you're not a great golfer and you can get better. What would Tiger Woods do? <laughs> oh, no, Tiger Woods is really good at it. I'm just me. Like, the so what would Jesus do? Now, now the, the proper application of that, I would say, is what would you do if Jesus was standing next to you? I think that's a great way to think about it. But trying to be Jesus is a doomed scenario. He is Jesus for you. You need to figure out where you fit. And this passage tells us a lot about that. So I want to start in Hebrews 4 and say, well, why did we get presented with a a picture of Jesus being tempted, and I, I deviate into Hebrews, and, and, and it tells us in Hebrews, and the, and the author of Hebrews spends a lot of time on this topic, Jesus as the ultimate high priest. Hebrews 4 says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weakness. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Every way. That seems like an extreme statement, but it's made. Yet he did not sin. We all agree with that. That's, that's what we all understand. So what's the consequence? Then let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to find help in our time of need. With role models, I think we're either prone to elevate them very high or sometimes mistrust them. We say, you know, their experience is not my experience. Their skills are not my skills. I know my dad uh, worked the same place that I work. He, he worked for a long time in an outfit called Bell Laboratories. He worked there for 40 years. And um, my dad, like, unlike me, at the end of his career, lost his filters. He, uh, he had been there for 40 years, and he pretty much said what he was thinking, which was hilarious. So we had at one point, I was working in the same company at that point, so sometimes I would see some of the things that happened in his part of it. Um, after he'd announced his retirement, and there was pretty much nothing they could do to him, one of these emails that you might all get came through the department, and it was a self-serving email from someone in the department who had written a book 
on how to introduce products into the manufacturing process. Now, you need to understand that my father spent 40 years actually introducing products into the manufacturing process. And so this guy, who my dad knew of but had never worked with, wrote, it, wrote this book and sent to everybody saying, this book has been written in a very self-serving way. He said, you all ought to buy a copy. And my dad responded with, those who can, do. Those who can't, teach. And if you can't teach either, you might as well write a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no filters. That was my dad. And now, I, uh, anybody listening on podcast or here who is a published author, I apologize on behalf of my father. I know there are a few published authors here. But that's the sentiment that we sometimes come up with when we say, well, you know, Jesus didn't have to. Jesus, but it's not true. So let's go into the narrative a little bit where we prove that you know, our high priest is the real deal. So what's the context here? Jesus has just been baptized by John. A voice from heaven comes down pronouncing, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's his introduction. And that's the proclamation. This is my son. And he's immediately taken and being tempted. At the end of the tempting, he begins his public ministry. But at that point, John has been arrested. Jesus doesn't have his disciples yet. And he retires to Galilee. So let's just read through the passage and see what it says. And I'm going to bring some things out of it. Then Jesus, it's in Matthew 4, and it's not on the screen, so you're going to have to trust me that I'm reading it. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down, for it's written, he will command his angels to have charge over you, and they will lift you up with their hands, so they will not, you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said, Away from me, Satan, for it's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left, and the angels came and intended him. So, as I said, I wrestle with this passage. So what are the besetting sins that Jesus almost might have, could have, possibly committed? And how does that relate back to the seven deadlies that we're familiar with? I have to ask you about the seven deadlies. Do I have to make a case that they're bad for you? Do I really have to spend much time explaining to you how not only would engaging in something like greed or lust or pride on a regular and gripping basis destroy your soul personally and damage everyone around you? I think we all know it. If, if, if you forget or it seems like it's a little ethereal concept... You know, re-listen to some of these, but some of the examples of people engaged in the sin that Ben brought out, like Haman, it destroyed him. It destroyed the people around him. There's nothing good, and I think we all want to be free of it. I do. I think we've all struggled with not being free of it. I do. And when I looked at this passage, I'm like, well, what is going on here? And I was on the golf course, and something came to me. 
So I apologize for anyone who does not like sports analogies. I have endured a lot of sports analogies for sports I don't play. This is one I do. And I promise that it's not all about the sport. So I want to be a good golfer. A few of my golfers over here, I want to be good golfers. Golf is a deceptively simple game. Very, very easy. Got a ball. Little, tiny ball. You got sticks. You got a hole in the ground. Hit ball with sticks. Hole goes in. Done. It's not even a deep hole. You can lift the ball right out. So what is the goal? The goal is to hit the ball basically far, if you're a guy, far <laughs> and straight. If you were a good golfer, you just want to hit it straight and as long as you need. And one of the things that we're taught if you ever take lessons is you need to focus on the finish position. So after you finish, there's, you can see people at the golf range, and, and you can tell if you've played the sport, people practicing, you can tell by the way they're done. Are they a good golfer or not? Do they actually have some training? Because they'll be in a good athletic finish position, stretch back here. If you see people like this or like this or like this or like this, uh, unless they're Arnold Palmer who did that sometimes, and not anybody else's Arnold Palmer, you are not a good golfer. And it's because of the finish position. And in addition to the finish position, you can tell the way the ball goes, left or right, the ball flight. Now, what causes it? That those, those are the problems. Now, if you focus on the fin finish position, and I've seen people do this, you'll see them swing, and they'll end up in the bad position, and then they'll know they're supposed to be in the good position. So they lift up. Don't work. And you'll see people who focus on ball flight. So they know if the ball's going to the right, they want to like, try to make the ball go left, and they'll aim more and more to the right, and, or more and more to the left. And the problem is the ball will go further and further to the right. They're focusing on the wrong thing. So a good golf instructor will say, look, those things, your finish position, the ball flight, the mistakes, those are like the seven deadly sins, actually. Those are the results. Your problem is in your fundamentals. You need to grip the club correctly. You need to set yourself correctly. You need to take your, take your swing back correctly and start correctly. And if you do all that, the rest takes care of itself. You just swing through. You almost can't miss if you do everything correctly up front. These seven deadly sins, I see them the same way. If we're grounded, if we have the right foundation, you're not going to struggle with greed. It's going to be taken away from you. But this is what we see the devil poking at. This, this temptation is actually at the core of Jesus' very being. Now think about what he's asking. And think about the context. Jesus has just been publicly declared a child of God. We are all children of God too. If you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, you're in the family, you're adopted. We are all children of God. Jesus was just declared a child of God. And what's the first question the adversary asks? If you're really a child of God, is God really your father? Well, then you should expect this. You've been 40 days without food. You should do something about that. You should take it upon yourself to provide for yourself because obviously your father's not doing a very good job. And as your friend, look, that's stones right there. Take a look at those stones. I know, and you know, that you can do something with those stones. Now, why would this be a sin? I mean, 
for crying out loud, Jesus has got to eat. And he does very soon afterwards. Well, one of the things that I focused on was Jesus' commitment to that time of fasting. And when you commit to a spiritual discipline, the starting is a hard part. The middle part is generally easy. And finishing well is hard. So once you've committed to do it, once you're in it, once you've made that commitment, you can go along for a while. But finishing well is hard. And, and Satan was actually telling Jesus, don't, don't finish this well. And by the way, by the way, don't trust your father to provide for you. Now, very soon after that, the angels do come and attend to him. But it's kind of an interesting push-pull-trip attack. So he's pushing on Jesus. Like, are you going to be provided for? And Jesus says, yes. In fact, there's more to life than just making bread for my needs. Now, I want to take a real quick diversion here. And I have another slide that is possibly not going to work well at all. But for those of you who visualize well, um, do we have a little cross? That one. Oh, shoot. Well, I can't see it, so now I'm going to have to remember what it looks like. But um, in, the, in the prelude to uh, Third John, uh, John is writing a letter to his friend Gaius, and he says to Gaius, something that I wrote down here. He basically says, may it go well with you as your soul is being nourished as well. And he sort of points to the idea that, that if I ask you, how are you doing today? How are you doing? You're really going to give me an answer that sits along two, graph, two, two axes of a graph. You know, on, on the one side, how are you doing spiritually from low, weak at the bottom to strong up at the top? And you're going to be somewhere along that spectrum. And then how are you doing physically? How, how are your circumstances? And you're going to be weak on the one side across the spectrum. Now, I hadn't expected this to happen to me, but I, I happened to, have to actually happen to be on the left side of the how am I doing physically. I've got a little virus going on, and I actually wasn't sure I would be able to preach today. And I'm glad I have my voice, so I'm going to keep talking until it goes. But we were wondering, like, shoot, I'm the backup plan if Ben gets sick. If Ben's gone and I'm sick, like, we got no backup plan. So you might have been doing, like, a little discuss amongst yourselves. But <laughs> what it does when you are physically challenged, and I know some folks here have had chronic pain, um, physical challenges to go along for a long time, it tends to fix your focus. And I think we would all agree that you want to move from the weak, weak on the lower left, and you want to move up. You want to move up towards in a better position physically, in a better position circumstantially, better position emotionally, and, of course, a better position for your soul. Your spiritual life needs to be strong. The temptation, and what I tried to show with this little chart that I threw together, is that we often focus on the here and the now. Like, I'm hungry, I need bread. Like, I don't even want to think about what the implications of breaking my fast now or following the instructions of the adversary. You know, I need, this is a legitimate need. I'm going to deal with that first. And you see that Jesus didn't deal with that first. He moved to the other corner and he focused on becoming spiritually strong before he focused on becoming circumstantially strong. And there's so many variations here, so I'm not going to pretend, just take the chart down, I'm not going to pretend to say that there's a one-size-fits-all but I would ask you, as I'm finding out myself, when you're in a situation where you say, I have a weakness, or I'm feeling weak, I'm feeling beat down, at a minimum, 
try to be moving on the 45, that you're trying to fix your physical problems or your circumstantial problems, but you're not neglecting your spiritual. And consider a higher focus on your spiritual issues and seeing if the other things take care of themselves. Jesus' next temptation, though, is a little different. So the next, the, the, the adversary, Satan, the devil, takes him to the temple. And, and I would say that this is probably, really, he was really taken to the temple. I mean, at first, the first he really saw the rocks. This is not like in his mind's eye. And I believe he was really taken to a high point in the temple. And I've got to wonder, like, he was fully God, but fully human. Like, did he get that feeling in the pit of his stomach when he saw the height? Was this like a little, you know, physically fear-inducing for him as it would be for anyone with a natural fear of heights? Like, what was his physical feeling at that point in time? And then think about what Satan asked him to do in the context of what he's just done. Well, go ahead and jump off. You'll be fine. Go ahead and jump off. You'll be fine. Now, this is why I think this is a pretty sophisticated attack because the first thing Satan said was, basically, God's not providing for your needs. And Jesus said, well, yes, he is. There's more to my needs than just getting bread. So now Satan's like, well, yeah, God will provide for you. He will protect. Show me. Show me. What would the sin have been there? Well, again, it's substituting Satan's advice Satan as father, for God as father, and mistrusting God as father. Is God providing for you or not? Do you trust him or not? Now think about the context here. Jesus has been somewhere less than 40 days, but more than a few days, in the desert. When Ben comes back, he might have pictures of this very desert. This desert is not like a beach. I've seen this desert. This desert is a dangerous place. At night, there were wild animals and Jesus was in actual harm's way. At the height of noon, it is very, very hot. And if you don't have proper shelter, you are in harm's way. Jesus has been protected through all of this. Yet there was still a temptation to ask God to prove, ask his father to prove once again, are you really still protecting me? His answer was, don't put God to a test. And it's related in the Old Testament when the people of Israel were protected, provided for, and kept testing God. Now, how can this happen to us? Well, I'll give you my personal example. It's the only one I've got. How many times have you pushed the button? We have our investment portfolio all in Quicken or whatever thing. You can push a button and it tallies it up, right? And it makes a little red or green arrows. I'll have to admit, sometimes I'll push that button some afternoon and go, ha, that's a nice number. I'm set for retirement. And then something like, well, the financial crisis of 2008 was the first one where God showed me that that number has nothing to do with my security because it almost all went away in a fraction of a minute. And then, as if I needed reminding, last December, oh my goodness, I told Tammy, don't push the button. <laughs> don't push the button. You don't want to know the number. You just don't want to know. But it's a number. Like, the number of our retirement savings has zero to do with my health, my spiritual well-being, anything I do today. It's just what we've tried to do to plan for the future. But it is not protecting me from anything. 
And every time I push that button and feel good about the number, I'm substituting a ledger account in some stock exchange for God's provision. Because it's saying, what do I really trust? And I think this is the temptation. Did Jesus want to substitute or prove again? Prove again. Like this is something I need to find out. Finally, and this one is the one that I think everyone would agree would have been a blatant and direct sin. But, I mean, you jump back into Hebrews, and it says, Hebrews 2, Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted. These were not temptations like, oh, I just, you know, blow through it. This is not a problem. Like, I got this. There was actual temptation. Now, this third one, I believe he was, he was shown in a miraculous way because it says he was brought to a high point, so he's probably actually brought to a physical high point, and he sees the panorama of what would have been you know, Palestine, but he's also brought to his mind's eye like the grandeur and the splendor of all kingdoms. And I think this is how a lot of temptations start for us as well. We have a picture in our head. We see something. And it captivates us. So he's being tempted the same way. He sees this. And what's the offer? You can have dominion over all of this. What was wrong with that? That's what he came to do. If only you bow down to me. Well, what's the big deal? Fine, give it to me. Well, there was more to it than that. There was more going on behind the scenes than it might look for. Just, yeah, fine, give it to me. Well, on the first... The deceiver, did he really intend to follow through or did he just want to see what he could get? And second, what is this a mistrust of? This is mistrusting God's plan. I mean, Jesus came to earth to have dominion over all those kings and he had just been shown and it did not involve putting Satan in between God the Father and the plan. And this is one of the mysteries of the incarnation that I'm not about to try to explain. Steve told me in a small group. He'll explain it later, right? The incarnation is very difficult to get your mind around. Fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully man. Could he have actually done this? But was he really tempted? Did he really know at that point in his men, the the mind he had as a man, what was coming next? Or did he only know what the Father had revealed to him? I I think pieces of Scripture say there's things, believe it or not, he was waiting to find out. Do we trust that God has a plan? Now, you know, my family will tell you, I love plans. That's, when we're going on a trip, that's the first thing I say. Do we have a plan? And if the answer is yes, then I'm good. And if things don't go well, my first question is, was this part of the plan? <laughs> Never goes well. But I like to have a plan. I like to feel that there's a plan, we know what's going to happen, and it's going to happen for a reason, and we have the eventuality sort of sorted out. Do you feel that God has a plan for you? Now, if you want to think, like, how much did Jesus want to actually fulfill this? Another little tangent here. Later, it's, we're told that he sees Jerusalem. So now, He's seen all kingdoms, but he just sees Jerusalem, and Jerusalem has a special place in his heart. And he realizes that Jerusalem is a rebellious city. And he says, Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets and stones those who are sent. 
how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. You were not willing. It says, that's the Matthew account. In Luke, it says, he wept. This is not drama. We're not hearing this because it's part of the dramatic part of the narrative. This is real emotion. He wanted to redeem Jerusalem. He wanted, he wanted dominion over all the kingdoms of the earth, not for his superseding them, but for what he could provide when those kingdoms gave him the glory, what he would do. He wanted that, but not this way. And this is something I think that is a temptation to people in ministry, and I know a lot here are in ministry, people who lead churches. I know some of us are, are leading. And, and the, the, the ethic we try to present here at Trinity is this is a church where members are ministers. So as you buy into this, that this is not just Ben's church, you know, that Dave takes care of when Ben's away. It's our church that we do together. And you start to see the vision for what a church can do for the community. I mean, you might at some point weep over Lake Nona and say, if only you would set your foot in the door of this elementary school and we could gather you together and give you God's grace. It's a vision that's worth crying over. But then the question becomes, how? Do we trust that God has a plan? Do we trust that he'll fulfill it through us if we're faithful? Does he trust, do we trust that he may fulfill it through others, even though we are faithful? Do we trust to step back and not say, I'm going to do this? I had a good friend, I still have a good friend, who would often say when we're praying about things in ministry, we don't want to say, Here's our plan, God. Please bless it. We want to say, bless us and reveal your plan to us. We want to know what God wants. We want, as, as the quip was, find God at work and join him there. Not start working and hope he joins us. There was a couple of, couple of uh, not-so-famous people that I, I had an opportunity to meet a year ago. They spoke, and we were, uh, the Fernos came with us, and we saw these two guys who named the Benham Brothers. And you might not have heard of them. Maybe yes. So if you know Chip and Joanna Gaines, you've probably heard of them if you watch Home and Garden Channel at all. They, they had a home renovation kind of like, isn't it cool to be Chip and Joanna Gaines show? And in production, in parallel with that, were these two guys who were twin brothers. They were uh, athletes. They had been professional baseball players. They had successful real estate business. And uh, you know, Tammy and I had met them. They're just engaging guys. They're not shy at all. They're on fo fire for the Lord. They have uh, a lot of passion about what they do. Uh, and they're just fun to watch. And so they, you know, they gave a speech. I uh, gave a little. And they're just fun. And so they were also in production with Home and Garden Channel. Except at the time it came out that they held some beliefs that, well, 10 years ago, or I mean 15 years ago, would have been considered just pretty normal, mainstream Christian beliefs about various moral issues. And, and it was important to them. And they, you, know, if you ask them, well, is this right? They'll say, this is right. You say, is this right? They say, no, that's wrong, and this is why. And, and if you dig under it a little bit, the, the whole idea about why holding some beliefs firmly could be bad is, well, how do you feel about people who are you know, participating in this particular kind of sin? And their answer would be, I love them all the more because they need to be free from it, but I'm never going to tell them it's right. Well, Home and Garden Channel got wind of this. There was a big campaign against them while they were in pre-production that 
uh, people with these beliefs should not be on TV. And the story that's not in their book, and they tell it when they come forward and, and, and speak, is there was a point in time when they saw the writing on the wall and they saw where it was going. The money had been spent in pre-production. They had, some, they had you know, the, what they call the sizzle reel. They had all this stuff that was going to make a TV program. And for them, it wasn't about the money, although it was several million dollars. And, and I remember one of the brothers, going, it would have been nice. It would have been nice. But they had a business that provided for them. So it wasn't that they needed the money, but they really genuinely felt, you know, God will give us this platform of national notoriety, and we will be able to use it for his glory. And so at one point, they wrote an email to Home and Garden Channel basically saying, these are the beliefs we hold that we know are controversial. And if you proceed with production, we promise that we will not publicly say anything about these beliefs. And then they had the wisdom, at least, to send that email to a friend who they said, you know, within like three minutes wrote back and said, are you out of your mind? Are you really going to tell them that you're going to deny who you are and what you believe so you can have a platform to tell people who you are and what you believe? They, and they, they said, thank goodness we never went that route. They lost the whole deal. They got nothing. They, they like I said, they now speak, they speak nationally. Uh, if, you, if you wanted to see them, you'd have to go on you know, a second-tier circuit um, just to find their story. They don't have the big platform that they might have had, but they were tempted. They were tempted to get the right thing in the wrong way. When we think that God doesn't have a plan, there's a se- se- severe temptation to get the right thing in the wrong way. So I want to close with two just small points. And uh, these could be sermons on themselves. First, to review a little bit, when you look at how Jesus was attacked, we realize that at our fundamentals, like like in, in the golf analogy, you know, your posture, your grip, and your alignment, the very starting point was where we see Jesus being attacked. And he refused to give up on his posture, his grip, or his alignment. We often have a bad grip, sort of bad posture, we're a little misaligned, and then we hope things go right, and then when we see things aren't going like we want, and we see in our own life gluttony and greed and sloth, we focus on the result. And so what I think we're being taught here is you get back to the fundamentals, and the results start to take care of themselves. But how do you do that? One concept is this idea of being in Christ. And um, I I struggle with how to explain this. I struggle with how to live this. But the best way I've ever heard it explained, I'll just pass along and, and it's very quick. So in Christ, if I say I want to be in this book, these are my keys. I usually do this with a pen, but I didn't get a pen. So these are my keys. These, pen, these keys are in the book. Well, actually, no, they're not in the book. They're on the book. So the book goes here and the keys stay here. These keys are observing the book, right? The book goes here. So these keys can be part of a group of keys where most of the keys are in the book, but these keys are over here. It's not in. These keys are now in this book protected, covered. When I see the book, when I'm looking at the keys, I see the book first. You know that's in there. Where the book goes, the keys go. The shape of the book becomes the shape of the keys. We're told to be in Christ, not to be aware of Christ, not to be aware of people who are in Christ, 
Not to be near Christ. We're told to be in Christ. His shape becomes our shape. His position becomes our position. Before when I said, you know, how, how could I get better at golf? What would Tiger Woods do? I don't have to worry about what would Jesus do. I'm in Jesus. He's doing it. I need to stay in. I say, you could preach a whole sermon on that. One, one last, before I wrap, another idea that comes out of this, and it's it expanded in Hebrews, tremendously expanded in Hebrews. So what did it mean that Jesus went through all this? He's a high priest that's unlike any that went before him. Tempted in every way we are. Suffered under the temptation. This is not a theoretical thing for him. It's a real thing, and we're, we're encouraged that because of this, Because of this, we're able to approach the throne of God boldly, to experience the mercy and grace that's ours as sons. We're able to, even though when we are tempted to say, God doesn't have a plan, God hasn't been providing for me, God hasn't seemed to protect me, I've got this thing going on, how can that be protected? The example I, I, I came across, I was... Um, I was riding. I, I, I ride a bicycle. I was riding, and as I was riding, I was, I was praying about something. And it's, it's a personal thing, and it's, it's not something for me. It's something for someone else. And if I got into the details, which are not that relevant, but if I got into the details, you would all agree that what I was praying for, what I wanted, is a thing that anybody would want, and that person should get, right? It'd be fair for the person I'm praying for to get what I'm asking for. There's nothing ungodly about what I'm asking for. And I let my mind drift as I was riding into this place, maybe you've been before, where I was going to negotiate with God. If you answer this prayer, which you can't argue is a bad prayer, you should do this. What do I need to do so you would do that? And that didn't last very long because you can't negotiate with God. It doesn't work. But the thing that came to me is like, who am I that anything I could offer would entice God to do this thing? Like, crud. I've had this problem lately, and this has been going on, and, you know, sometimes this happens. And, and the next thing that came into my mind, because I had just recently, I was riding, and I had seen somebody that, that, that I knew, and boy, they were just, they were in such a good mood, and they were so kind to me, and they had just, and we had a nice conversation, and I was thinking, you know, that person, they're really a good person. They're really a good person. God would do this thing for them if I... Uh, 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 well, that's not how it works either, is it? You can't... I mean, we are asked to pray for each other, but God doesn't do things for me because I get the favors that he owes somebody else. And then it struck me that all this time I've always wondered about the Catholic tradition where they pray to saints. I was tempted to pray to a saint that I, I knew personally because I felt close to them. And I knew that they were a kind and good person. And I knew that they have a vibrant prayer life. And I knew that, you know, I, I felt like, you know, like maybe God won't answer my prayers, but they, God should answer their prayers because they're really good. And then I realized I have a high priest who doesn't have a theoretical understanding of my frailties, doesn't have a, I read about it in a book, and I wrote a book about your frailties. He's experienced the very core attack temptations that lead to my frailties did not succumb, and is now willing to go to God the Father on my behalf. Why 
don't I just ask him? And what can I accomplish if I, in faith, say, I trust you to ask for the right thing, this thing that I need, this thing that I want, will you do it for me? So at Trinity, we do remind ourselves that we have a priest, and we remind ourselves of what he went through to get there. And the way we remind ourselves weekly is by communion. Communion goes back to the night Jesus was betrayed. He had his disciples around in front of him. And he said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. As often as you come together, do this to remember me. What are we remembering? We're remembering the Jesus who was tempted, who suffered under those temptations. We're remembering the Jesus who was patient with those 12 guys, even the guy who was about to walk out of their room and stab him in the back. We're remembering the Jesus who went to the cross on our behalf. Julio is going to talk about that next week. And we're remembering the Jesus who is our high priest, who has standing with God the Father, who will and can take our prayers and our requests. I want to say that when we pray in Jesus' name, it's not just a tagline. When you say, and in Jesus' name I pray this, you're referring to everything that's in Hebrews. And I would encourage you to to take it seriously. It's not just a tagline you put in the end of a good prayer. It's something that's very serious. So we practice the intinction method. It means that there's going to be a cup that represents the blood, the bread that we dip. In, in Corinthians, we're warned that we should approach this seriously. We should approach this in a worthy manner. And we are worthy because of what Jesus did for us, not anything we've done. So I wouldn't say don't, don't do this because you have any struggles. But we need to approach it in a worthy and understanding manner. So we let the children partake, but we have the parents decide, do they understand what they're doing? And if, if it's, they're too young, we'd encourage them not to. But if they understand, it's a thing we should celebrate as a family. So as the servers come forward, so can you.